This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts, and Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. So on Money Talks, we're here to answer your personal finance questions each week. Between your phone calls today, though, we're going to be talking about mutual funds, what they are, how they work, and different kinds of mutual funds. When you contact us by email, send it to money at mpbonline.org. We can't usually address those on the air, uh, but if you do send an email, we will send you a written response from either Nancy and or Ryder. And to start the show each week, we like to talk about things in the news, financially speaking. So, Nancy, we will start with you. What caught your eye this week? Well, it's all about Walmart, and they haven't announced uh, a stock split And this is the first stock split that they've had since 1999. And everyone gets excited about stock splits, and I don't understand why. I get more shares, Nancy. Yes, but it's worth the same thing. (laughs) At what cost? Zero. It's not grown. (laughs) It's just cut in more slices. Why would they do that? Yes, because they're trying to have this perception of growth, and they're also trying to hit the sweet spot when it comes to stock prices, where people are more likely to jump in with those round lots of 100 shares, even though we don't do that so much anymore. So a couple of dates you need to know. February 22nd is the date of record. If you own shares of Walmart by the end of that day, then you will participate in this split, and the split will happen February 26th. Right now, the stock is trading at somewhere around $170 a share. After the split, it's going to be somewhere around $55 a share. So the three-for-one means that for every one share you have after the split, you're going to have three shares. But again, don't get excited because they're going to be worth the total that you had before, and it makes no difference. Okay, so this is an interesting technical thing, and and I had a slightly technical thing, uh, but this is a technical thing that happens in stocks, and it happens if you have a brokerage account. Sometimes you will see something really weird happen with your stock. It often happens around large dividends, but this is an interesting one in that you will probably see, so you said February 22nd is the day when effectively, if you had owned it, I'm guessing the day before, then you would be entitled to... Um, the you know the two for one, and so the value of those shares, oh, three for three one. For wow, one. wow, wow! So the value of those shares, because again, it was say it was at uh, looks like it was about a, ooh, wow, a hundred and eighty. Um, so that that's kind of nice. So it's one hundred eighty now. It'll be uh, sixty bucks is really the value if, if it were actually three shares. So you'll see your share price go down to $60, but you might not actually see the new shares 
until the next day, which it's over a weekend. I mean, people are going to be that's two whole days to check your account and panic about this. So it's going to be a weird looking thing where the price is adjusted, but just the record keeping on your brokerage side may not have adjusted. Uh, of course, you know, they, they, they may do it all in one fell swoop, but it could very easily be that the price adjusts because the market knows, okay, we're trading with a third of a share now, but your brokerage just hasn't, you know, changed that number of shares in your account. So it looks, it may look for a moment like you just disappeared a whole bunch of money. And ultimately, it's really just about how the company will grow and what its overall value is. Uh, Walmart is really trying to do some interesting things right now, kind of change up the shopping experience. They're going to have um, samples in the store like Costco now, hmm. so they get people to stay in the store longer. They're changing up the look of the store. Um, they're doing more online as they try to compete with Amazon. So this old line retailer is positioning itself pretty well right now, and that's what you're really after. Um, so if you were interested in investing in Walmart stock, would this not be a good time to do so? It's an inconsequential time to do so, Kevin. Yes. We just talked about how well, this has no impact. <laughs> but I mean, the, price the, the split itself, the split itself has no impact on the company, has no impact on the company. I mean, they may have to pay their transfer agent like a few dollars to help with that. And so they'll be out a couple of dollars. But in comparison with the vast kajillions of dollars that Walmart has, not a problem. But what I'm saying is if I could have bought it the 20 second for $180 and I can buy it on the 25th for $60. No. no. If you if you, if you only had $60 to your name and needed a share of Walmart stock, yes, thank goodness they're splitting. Well, I mean that's what I'm saying is for, <laughs> But if you had more than $60, you'd be all right. You would have been all right. You could have bought. Well, let me let me I'm you're confusing me now, so then let me play dumb here. Well, is, the point, Kevin, okay. is the split does not matter. And um, people get hung up with the idea of the price per share that they use that dollar amount to say whether a, a share is cheap or expensive. And that's not the measure we use as investors. We use all kinds of other multiple numbers from the financial statements to say whether something is cheap or expensive. And so... That's where we get caught with this. It's going to be less, and um, a split is going to cause it to go higher. Again, it's about the overall value of the company, and um, and yes, there is some psychology. Mm -hmm. You address that with being in the sweet spot as far as a price per share that invites more investors in. They have the perception that they can jump in now, um, but it really doesn't make any difference. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Oftentimes, uh, a split or even special dividends, you'll see, even though there is no change in the value, because again, the, the stock is just a box which contains all of the money and all the operations of Walmart, and the box is not changing. You're just getting a smaller piece of the box for a proportionally smaller price. So psychologically, yes, a lot of times these things do bid up. But I think the slice of pie uh, analogy, Nancy, that you brought up earlier is great. You know, if you went to a diner and they said it's two dollars for a slice of pie and you only had a dollar, well, you're in luck if they'll cut it in half for you. Or, well, maybe you had um, maybe it was three dollars and you only had a dollar and they said they cut it in thirds for you. Again, you're not getting a whole 
slice of pie. I mean, it is a slice. It's just a third of the other slice. So, so I guess the can I say then not all sixty dollars stocks are created equal. Exactly. Correct. Okay. You got it. All right. A <laughs> little light bulb there. So we, I, I could have, probably pull up a list of stocks trading around sixty dollars, and we can compare them real quick. If well, we I, would you agree with me that most people like me that are not savvy investors would think that that it was a good time because the price is lower? I yes. mean, it's, that's what they want, I guess. Yes, that's what they're counting on. Okay. Well, will there are dumb people out there like me? They'll probably be very successful at no, it. No, let's don't call them dumb. Let's say they're not uninformed. Uh, un- uninformed, uneducated about this particular area. Okay, and that's why we have a show like this on the air because we want folks listening to uh, to understand these sorts of things. And I learned something new today, so I can go home happy. That's it. End of show. No, I'm sorry. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to put on some light music for the rest of the hour. Thank. Take it away, Abram. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Ryder, what's on your mind, financially speaking? Uh, so just another kind of market-moving sort of uh, information. Capital One is buying Discover Financial Services. So these are two credit card companies. Uh, in the credit card world, though, it's kind of interesting. We talk about credit cards a lot, so this is a little kind of behind the scenes there. There's three parties involved in a credit card transaction. It is you, the person holding the credit card. That is, you have a card which indicates that you have an account. And so it is your account. It is the network that relays all this information and then, or that relays the dollars. The network relays your dollars into the account of the merchant. So uh, Capital One is a credit card issuer. Uh, I, I, they can have business accounts, I suppose, but for the most part, they issue just to to people, to, to the consumers. Discover uh, actually has somewhat of a network itself. And so one of the things is they capture more pieces of, of this uh-oh, I'm going to have to say pie again. Of the credit card pie, they can kind of grow their their clout. They can grow their economic p- power. So, again, the, uh, the three major – the two major networks we know are Visa and MasterCard. Uh, and then there's American Express. American Express, actually, not a lot of places take it because it owns all three parts. So to take American Express, you must have an American Express account, of course, that is processed on the American Express network. And the user, the uh, the, the buyer, the, the URI with the card must be using an American Express card. So they own all three parts. So they just capture a much larger part of that. So their network is smaller because it's just harder to get all those three stars to align. Um, so this Capital One, discover they're just trying to bring more people to a specific network uh they're trying to capture more of that activity uh so uh, probably will be good for them this sort of idea of network effects where the bigger your network the easier and faster and more profitably it can grow um and they are much smaller than Visa, MasterCard, which kind of have that duopoly. They kind of set all the rules and set all the fees. So you know, maybe they'll be big enough to kind of challenge them, invoke a little bit of competition, maybe make things a little better. I know Capital One's are particularly aggressive at getting cards out there in the hands of people. So it'll be interesting to see if this does shape the credit card, uh, credit card scene any from here. I would just like to say that my favorite is cherry pie. What about oh. you guys? <laughs> uh, I will go pecan on that one. Ah, or or chocolate is good, too. That's really good. Yeah. Um, I 
I had a really, really good blackberry cobbler once. Oh, I don't know if this quite counts, but I it is it is it is it was a it was a dessert I will never forget. So a quick question before we go to our first break, then um, when a when a bank issues you a credit card, how do they determine whether that will be a Visa or a MasterCard? It's just whoever they work with. Okay, so they're yeah. working with one of the networks, but. Right. The two big ones are most merchants will accept both of those networks, I'm guessing. Yes. Okay. Yes. Those are basically everybody. All right. Hey, I've learned another thing this morning. We are on a roll. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Then you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. We're ready to answer your personal finance questions this morning. We've got some open phone lines. Between your calls, though, today, we're going to be talking about mutual funds. So as we begin our discussion of mutual funds, Nancy, I think the obvious first question is, what is a mutual fund? Well, it's in the category of what we call pooled funds, and those are collections of investments or collections of securities, like a total portfolio. And um, just to have that whole portfolio of a combination of different types of investments or different types of securities that you can then pool your money with other investors and participate in the growth of that total pool or portfolio. All right. So, Ryder, how do how do they work? How do mutual funds work? So I was sitting here trying to think if we could extend our pie analogy any, but it, it's not <laughs> it's not really working for me. <clears throat> so like Nancy said, it's it's a pooled fund. So everyone's putting their money together and they are choosing or really the manager is the one who makes the pooled fund work. Um, the manager you know, gets investors and they all give him some money and he goes out and or he or she goes out and buys stocks or buys bonds or buys whatever the mutual fund is supposed to be buying. And there's a whole, like Nancy said, there's a whole range of different types of funds here. So there's mutual funds, there's closed-ended funds, there's exchange-traded funds, there's unit trusts, there's all sorts of different structures for it. But again, they're all kind of similar in that there is someone who manages that money, who goes out and chooses investments of, of some type. And then there are investors who put their money and participate in the gains. And so it's not like you have a a single segregated account with your name only on it. You are sharing in this large pool and you have a share of this uh, of this larger account as it is. So, Nancy, let's uh, talk about some of the advantages of investing in mutual funds. What would you say uh, one or two might be? Well, first, you have instant diversification. Um, instead of maybe owning that one Walmart stock in your portfolio, now because you participate in this fund, you own a whole bunch of different types of securities. And so that gives you that instant diversification and some protection in case one or two of those really tank in the middle of all of that. You still may be exposed to market risk. Um, they're very convenient. And what we really banked on for a long time was that you could buy partial shares, which makes them perfect for um, 401ks, for employer retirement plans, because you can just take 
$50 and buy $50 worth of a mutual fund, even though it may be a partial share. Now, some of that has changed with um, some stocks. You can now buy partial shares, but mainly that's been with those mutual funds. They're perfectly designed for employer retirement plans. They're great for smaller investors, again, because you may not be able to afford to buy 20 different stocks in a well-balanced portfolio, but you can put just a small amount of money into a mutual fund and have exposure to all of those different types of investments. Ryder, do we know how old mutual funds are? Have they been around for a while? Uh, I guess they would have been the 1940s Advisor Act that helped bring them into being. I'm not 100% sure. Well, but yeah, yeah go but ahead. they were there be- before that. Uh, we had mutual funds before that, but it just got codified with the Investment Company Act of 1940. Yeah, so – and. People pooling their money for investments has been around mm, probably since a few days after the first investments were being made. Um, The structure, the format of that, the quality of the manager, the reason for pooling those monies has certainly changed. And and nowadays, just the the only advantage I, I would add to Nancy's list was that you can get professional managers. Uh, you know, we are big believers in passive funds, which just track an index, which is again just a just a list of stocks that someone has kind of set some rules for inclusion, or maybe there's a committee who, from time to time, changes this list of stocks. Um, but there's also active managers out there who are working very hard to study stocks to say which ones do we think are going to go up the most, or or which ones do we think represent the most value for the risk that we're taking here. And you have access to kind of their approach to the markets. And it may it may be better than some approaches. It may be worse than some approaches, but it will be different. And it may be the type of return that you're looking for. Um, so, Nancy, when we talk about the different types of mutual funds that are available, does that sometimes tell you what are, what is in the funds? Like, is there a mutual fund that maybe would be only S&P 500 stocks, that sort of thing? Well, there can be. And let me back up because when we talk about mutual fund, it's, it's these investors have a mutual interest. That's why they've joined together. A hedge fund is a type of mutual fund, is a private mutual fund. Um, Ryder mentioned exchange-traded funds. And exchange-traded funds are pretty new. The first one was in 1993. And even though those are under the Investment Company Act of 1940, there are actually exceptions to that act. And so each ETF that is uh, formed, they have to get a special ruling for that. Opened in mutual funds, closed in mutual funds. But you can tell a lot, not everything, because sometimes the name doesn't tell you everything, but you can tell a lot from the name of a mutual fund. So if I have something in there that says equity, well, that's a stock fund. If it says large cap, those are big companies. If it says global, they're buying U.S. companies as well as companies all over the globe. Um, If it's international, well, it's going to be outside of the U.S. 
Uh, if it says fixed income, I have got some bonds in that portfolio. So you can tell a lot by the name, but you really need to dig down into it because, again, you want to make sure that you're participating in a fund that matches your risk profile, that matches your time horizon and your goals, and and you're investing in the th- time, th- types of things that you really do want to invest in. So, Ryder, how do you track the performance of these mutual funds? Oh, no, Kevin, I was the wrong person to ask this to. <laughs> I could I could answer this question for seven days. You can tune back in next week and I will still be answering oh, this no. question. Let's get the Cliff Notes version oh. of it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, so the performance figures you most often see really for anything, and, and it's very good that, that this is – the most common way of seeing it is called a time-weighted return, and essentially that asks the question over some period, say the time-weighted return for 2023, for last year, is the return that if you had put in a dollar at the beginning of 2023, what would that have turned into at the end of 2023? And so that's a really convenient way uh, and that's that's a way of calculating the return. It essentially slices up uh, the time periods into really individual days, so that because money goes into and out of mutual funds all the time, it, it issues dividends. How do you account for all these things? Time weighted returns take care of that. They they just they look at all these different slices of time. They ignore all these cash flows in and out, and they just say, what would happen if I put a dollar in at the beginning and taken a dollar plus or minus the returns at the end, and that's comparable. Uh, Also with a mutual fund, very importantly, this number is shown net of fee. So the mutual fund manager will take a fee out of the fund in some way, however they've kind of prescribed. And so what you see, what you see when you watch the price and when you watch if you invest a dollar and when you see that dollar grow, that is net of fee. Uh, Now, that being said, and, and, and I know this is probably going to come in later, there are mutual funds which charge either, in addition to just an ongoing, hey, it's been in for a year, you know, we charge half a percent a year, we charge a percent a year. In addition to that fee, they may charge what's called a front or back load. So a front load is when you put it in, they may take a fee right off of that. So you put in a dollar, they take five cents out, and that's that's their fee, plus there's some ongoing fees. But so you see 95 cents in your account. And there's some which charge a back load, which is you put in your dollar. And if you take it out either within a certain amount of time or ever, then they take out their five cents. So a little bit deceptive to see that if you're watching your account and think, oh, great, I can withdraw a dollar and four cents today. And turns out you can only withdraw 98 cents. Uh, but that front-loaded or back-loaded fee is in addition to the ongoing fee that, that you That would pay. be in addition to the ongoing fee. And the ongoing th- fee is not something that you will ever see. I mean, if we, I do remember we had a caller who called in, and he was trying to calculate that fee so he could deduct it on his taxes. And um, you can't. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. And we are ready to take your personal finance questions this morning. We're also talking about mutual funds. We've got a caller on the line, so we say good morning to David. David, thanks for calling in. You're on the air, so go ahead. 
Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, I've got a question. If you work for a company X number of years and uh, you put it into your 401k and then you draw it off for some reason or another and you've been gone away from that company since, I think, uh, two years, can that place the business with deniers their part of the part they put in, even after you turn 59 and a half years of age? Yes. Yes. So what it's, uh, if I'm getting all the details correct, what it sounds like is you've put in some money. The company has either a match, uh, maybe they have profit sharing, maybe they just put some bonuses in there. They put some, the company puts some money in and you put some money in. One thing with a 401k is the company can control when you're allowed to actually have the portion that they put in. So you are always what's called vested in the money that you put in. You put some money in, you can always take that out. Now, of course, there's there's penalties and there's there's taxes to pay on things like that and there's there's rules around that. But it's, it's always your money. The money that the company puts in, depending on how they've set it up, may be subject to some sort of vesting schedule. I've seen the, the kind of harshest ones I've seen are after, say, five years, you, you're entitled to none of it until five years later, all of a sudden you're entitled to it. Uh, a very normal one is it's a couple years uh, of service. And, and one thing I would say is, well, you mentioned having left the company for a couple years or not worked there for a couple of years. Those years would probably not count towards your vesting. They, they count, of course, the years that you work for them. And there's a lot of reasons the companies do this. Sometimes they're just mean. Sometimes they're just cheap. But mostly they want to encourage you to stick around for longer. They want to dangle that money in front of you and say, hey, just a couple more years, you get this dollar. And then when you get there, they, they're dangling another dollar in front of you. So, yes, they can control when you are allowed to, when you are entitled to the money that they put in. Does that, does that answer your question? With that being said, long term, they cannot say, no, you're not going to get it. Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, long term, they still can. I mean, if, if you are working for the company, um, every dollar they put in will be subject to whatever vesting schedule that they have established. They may have one where upon a certain number of years, the vesting schedule may go away. But your age alone does not satisfy the vesting schedule. Understand. Understand. I think I was like 10, 10, 12 years. Yeah. So, so certainly some of those early dollars that the company put in, I mean, I would be, I would be absolutely appalled. I don't know if it's even legal for them to have a vesting schedule 10 years long. Some of those early dollars, but again, you, you, you put, you put probably put money in every year. They probably put money every year and each dollar kind of has its own timer set on it. it has its own date on the calendar. And if, and if, uh, you know, like like you said, maybe you were away for a couple of years. the The timer would have stopped at that point. Um, you would you would be subject to whatever rules about going back that that they have. Four hundred one k can be immensely complicated, uh, and they all have a very uh, detailed disclosure book, which you know people like me have a have a fun time reading, and nobody else does. But um, we could be here too long with that. 
And David, you can look in something called the summary plan description. Um, they should have given you a copy of that. Uh, you don't have to read the full amount, but somewhere in there will be a vesting schedule. And if you still are looking at that and you're not sure and you don't understand, I would say talk to the Human Resources Department. They should be able to explain it to you. That answers my question. Thanks a bunch. All right, uh, David, we appreciate your call. Just so I understand here, so so year one, you put your money in, and if the vesting schedule is – five years then for that money from year one you get it five, even okay, five years later even though you might not be getting the money put in they put in on years two and three or whatever because it's not gone to the five years yet well it right. varies it varies, it varies some absolutely. of them will have just a five year and all they're interested in is getting you to stick around for more than five years because of course the training and the that it goes into a new employee and and the effort that goes into finding someone to occupy that spot they want you to stay there so more often than not it's just a matter of here's this five years and once you get past the five years it's all yours they can do different things but again you need to look at the description of that particular plan because they're all different Next, we're off to Vicksburg. Raymond has called in today. Good morning, Raymond. Go ahead, please. Yes. Um, I have stocks in grain tanks, and uh, I, they cater to a certain brand of stock or uh, favor a certain brand of stock. So I want to try and get away from that. So uh, I'm thinking if maybe I can go to one of those online sites uh, uh, and, and do something there, maybe one of those places that doesn't charge a fee. But uh, I noticed that uh, they bet on you losing. So is there a place that you're safe to go to that maybe we could uh, do some investing on our own? Yes, so uh, it wasn't clear it, quite quite in the beginning when you said what you're currently invested in, but yes, if... You can go, we call them discount brokers, or we used to call them discount brokerages. Nancy, do we call them that anymore? Um, I think we still do. <laughs> okay, we still do. And so that is kind of the, uh, we would say, the, the retail-facing, the end-user client-facing brokerage house, where it's they offer the online trading, they offer the online account making, maybe, you know, maybe they'll send you paperwork if you want to hand sign it on paper, but for the most part, places like Fidelity and Charles Schwab those are two very large custodians where you can just go to their website, open up an investment account, and have access to pretty much most of the investment world. Uh, certainly all stocks and bonds that are traded in the United States, uh, probably almost all of the mutual funds or some flavor of them. And you get to choose, uh, Raymond, you get to choose what you want. So say you were in something before that was, um, it was just small all companies only and that was volatile and you didn't like you can you can invest in large companies you can invest in fixed income you can have only US treasuries you can have only corporate bonds you can have short term or long term you can choose the different investments even going down to of course selecting individual stocks so if you're real excited about this Walmart stock split coming up you and Kevin can pool your $60 together and buy a share together um so, well, yes, I that is also, possible. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, Raymond, and this is very common with a brokerage house that is more of a um, traditional brokerage house 
when you say they they want you to have the brand of stock that sounds like what they want is the brand of mutual funds that they're using mutual funds from one particular family um, and they're pushing that now if you want to move those over to a discount broker one of the things you're going to have to watch out for which we have to watch out for when mm. we deal with clients moving over is making sure that discount broker can hold that particular mutual fund if they can't hold it, you might have to sell it at Raymond James and then move your cash over. But you have to think about any kind of taxes that could happen if you did that or any um, early penalties that you might suffer because of that. But it's very common for those traditional brokers to really push a particular family, we call them family of funds, uh, on their clients. So when you're trying to sell the stocks from what Raymond James and go to another stock, uh, put it into yes. something else. Uh, yes, I just you, want you to suggest uh, in something else. Well, again, you can, but you have to be careful um, if you're in an account that's not a retirement account, there may be taxes to pay. Um, Even if it's in a retirement account, there may be early penalties for getting out of some of those things. So you're going to have to just dig into the details to figure out what's available to you to do. And so uh, also just one thing, I, I didn't catch the Raymond James before, but that is a more of a full service broker. So again, we mentioned Charles Schwab, uh, which we use as a custodian. Uh, we mentioned Fidelity. Those are all where you can approach that brokerage yourself, kind of do it yourself. Raymond James, I don't believe they have an option where you can really self-direct. You have to work through their brokers. You have to work through their advisors, but they are fairly large and can offer pretty much any of the investments that you might be looking for. You know, so if it's an issue with you uh, just you know not working well with the advisor there, not working well with the broker, or just not not really you know knowing what all you can do with that relationship, you should be able to pick and choose and find more things and have exercise a little bit more control. I mean, as an advisor myself, you know, one thing I hate is when a, a client doesn't realize they can just say, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this stock or could you explain to me why we have this here? Because oh, I'm, I'm sitting here investing what I think is in your best interest and, you know, in, in the kind of best for what I think the world looks like and what I think your financial looks like life looks like. But if I'm a little bit wrong or if you're a little bit unhappy, then it's just not going to work. And I think that's the kind of what you're illustrating right now. But you you may be able to get a different advisor or broker through there that you might work better with. We're glad you found our show Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. Next, we're going to go to Memphis. Daryl has called in today. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air with us. So go ahead. Uh, good morning, Kevin, Nancy, and Ryder. Um, my question has to do with mutual funds and exchange traded funds. Uh, I'm, I'm not clear on the difference between the two. Uh, and also, why is there such a price difference between uh, when I compare mutual funds and exchange traded funds? And thank you all. Nancy, any thoughts? Yes, these are two very different um, beasts. But they're also almost identical. Well, they're both uh, <laughs> pooled funds, um, but mutual funds, what we think of as open-end mutual funds, are only priced one time a day. 
And so when you place a trade for a mutual fund, it clears overnight. You're never quite sure until you get to the end of the day and they do all the math and they come up with that net asset value, um, how many shares you're going to get. And so it will clear overnight. An exchange-traded fund, one of the huge advantages is that it trades all during the day like a stock, like an individual stock. So you place that trade, you know very quickly what you're going to get, how many shares you're going to get. Exchange-traded funds started out to be um, all passive, meaning they were just tracking an index. There was no manager trying to figure out, should I buy Walmart or should I buy Home Depot? They were just buying this select uh, set of securities within this index. And, and now, that has if I can interrupt, some. Nancy, that's an issue of uh, transparency because mutual funds only need to report their holdings to the investors once a quarter, whereas an exchange-traded fund, you can see at all times what is in the fund. So so it made more sense just to say, hey, we're always going to hold these 100 stocks, guys. If you want to buy these 100 stocks, send us some money. We're going to do this for an exchange-traded fund. It made less sense for an active manager who thought he was doing something big and secret and special to to have a have to publish constantly his holdings and, or, or his or her holdings and, and show kind of show his hand in that way. So so that's the a transparency difference between the two. Sorry, back to you. Well, and then the, uh, another big difference is how they are taxed. Uh, mutual funds are pass through entities. So if they are in accounts that are not retirement accounts. Uh, once a year, they have to send out all the dividends and all the capital gains, and that has to be reported, and you can be hit with a big tax bill. Exchange-traded funds, uh, the way they are created and destroyed, it's really complicated, that, um, that their tax structure is much more efficient, and you don't have those big surprises that you have with a mutual fund. Now, again, those open-end mutual funds are perfect for employer retirement plans, Exchange-traded funds are starting to creep into these employer plans, but they're creeping in in a weird way. They're creeping in by being put in an open mutual fund, so it's a different layer going on there. Um, but exchange-traded funds tend to be lower in the expense ratios, what you're being charged. That's not across the board. Uh, Vanguard actually has some open-end mutual funds that have lower expense ratios than the exchange-traded funds. But that's how they became so popular, tracking the index, lower expenses, um, easier to trade during the trading day, more tax-efficient. All right, Daryl. Okay, pre- thank you all. All right. Always good to hear from you, Daryl. Thanks for your phone call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're off to Hattiesburg next. Ellie has called in today. Good morning. It's your turn, so go ahead. Yes, um, I know some people that work um, at a hospital, and they were the employees contribute a certain amount, and then the hospital was contributing a certain amount. The hospital stopped and didn't tell the employees. Um, anyway, it's a big mess, but um, I was just wondering if that's a common occurrence with companies. Well, they can stop, but they're supposed to disclose that, and they may have uh, some adjustment to their plan. Some smaller plans, like a a simple retirement plan, will allow the employer to stop for a short period of time. But again, you should be notified. So if they have not been notified and that was going on, they've got a legal case. Okay. Thank you. 
All right, Ellie, we appreciate your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. So, Nancy, we talked a little bit about uh, how the performance of a mutual fund is measured. What would your advice be to someone who is wanting to invest in mutual funds? How, which ones should they pick? Well, don't necessarily pick the one that had the biggest return last year, because what we see with many of these is something called reversion to the mean, and mean in data and statistics is just the average. And so you want to look over a longer period of time, five or 10 years, how did this fund perform? How did they perform compared to the same types of funds in their category? And that's what you're really looking for. And again, making sure that whatever that fund is invested in matches your own time horizon and risk profile. Uh, yes, I, I often hear people say, "Oh, well, I just looked, and you know, this one is one of the top performing ones of the past three years." And you know, like Nancy said, you do not want to choose the top performing in the past. What you're looking for is the top performing one in the future. So, if you simply just choose the one which is going to perform best in the future, you'll be done. Um, but importantly, you need to match it with your own needs. We talk a lot about a split between stocks and bonds. We talk a lot about a split between bonds and cash. We talk a lot about a split between you know, large stocks and small stocks and international stocks. And essentially, all of these investments have different returns, uh, return expectations, different volatility expectations. And for someone, again, who's someone who needs money tomorrow, you need that money in cash. You need a money market investment. You need an extremely short-term bond fund investment. If you need money over the next few years, you, you need it to be somewhat stable, but earn some interest. You want bonds that kind of match the duration of your need. And then when you're putting away money for longer and you just want to align your investments with kind of the growth of U.S. companies and, and the increasing profits and the growth in the economy, then you want to invest in stocks because over the long term, even though they could be anywhere today, tomorrow, next year, over the long term, you expect these to grow a lot to meet your needs. So first, finding the category, the type of the type of investment that is appropriate for you is the first step there. So, uh, Nancy, I know in previous shows we've talked about diversification, and, and that's one of the advantages of a mutual fund. But I think in the past you've kind of cautioned us of if you buy two mutual funds that are sort of tracking the same thing, that's that's not a whole lot of diversity. Am I on the right track exactly. there? Exactly. And what we see in a lot of retirement plans is something called a life cycle fund or a target retirement fund. It is an all-in-one fund. Back to Walmart, it is the Walmart of mutual investing, everything under one roof. So if you're not sure when you look at that list the employer gives you, you can select a fund, a life cycle fund, a retirement fund that matches your retirement date, and that's the only one you need. Any final thoughts about uh, diversification, Ryder, quickly? I think not only think that um, a mutual fund will give you diversification within their sector. So you choose a diverse large cap fund. It, it gives you a broad range of large U.S. companies, but it also can, one, it can focus on a specific type of large company. So maybe ones people call growth or ones people call value. And that just has different characteristics of the stock. So you know, make sure you know exactly what how how detailed their segment goes. Um, but also, don't forget you may still need other diversification. And in addition to your stocks, you may also need some bonds. So don't forget that just because your one fund is diversified. 
That's going to wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPP Think Radio, funded in part by financial listener support from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks. So for Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson and Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting us to inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks Heard Only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. <laughs>